Good morning. Welcome to Rising. So Ryan is out this week, uh, but today you guys have to put up with me all day. <laughs> Somehow we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna deal with this, right, right, Robbie? Yes. Excited to deal with it. Always fun when it's just the two of us. We love Ryan yes. too, but today yes. just us. Today it's just us, but then tomorrow and the rest of the week, there's another, I think Brianna Joy Gray is filling in for Ryan Grimm, so, um, and then he'll be back next week, but. Right, it's yeah. it's a rotating cast of, of, of co-hosts. We can, we can surprise <laughs> the audience every day, so. That's right. Well, All right, what do we have going on today? Absolutely. Today we have Bacha Angar-Sargan, who will join us to discuss new updates on the Hunter Biden probe. And Dr. Rodrigo Zidane will help us break down the situation in Shanghai, which is suffering from very, very strict coronavirus <sighs> lockdowns. <laughs> Does not make Kim and I very happy. No, really crazy stuff going on there. So uh, we'll be hearing about that. But first, let's give you some updates on Ukraine. In a video addressed to South Korea, Ukrainian President Zelensky said that tens of thousands of people have died in Mariupol, much higher than previously suspected. However, NBC News was unable to verify a death toll in Mariupol after reports of Ukrainian soldiers driving off Russian assaults in the country's eastern regions. And as the battlefield shifts, Zelensky is calling on President Biden to do more and said that Ukraine's fate depends on the U.S. supply of weaponry to Ukraine. Just last week, the U.S. pledged to send new weapon systems to Ukraine after the NATO foreign minister agreed to provide Kyiv with arms deliveries as well. So far, the U.S. has sent $1.7 billion worth of supplies. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said NATO is working on a plan for full-scale military presence on its border in an effort to battle future Russian aggression. Originally, it was reported that NATO forces were planning a permanent presence at the border, but Reuters since changed that headline. So Yeah. I mean, because what is permanent? You know, how can you say right. something is permanent? Um, I mean, it very well could end up being permanent, but I guess you don't really want to make that sort of commitment. Um, but, you know, what's really interesting about this is to say, OK, there's going to be a, a, a NATO presence, a nearly permanent or just a, a very long term, very sig substantial, significant presence of NATO. Who pays for NATO? The United States pays for NATO. Right. So is the United States going to be going over there and, and, and supplying troops and more weapons to defend Europe? against a threat that, you know, look, I know I didn't believe that Russia was going to be invading Ukraine. Neither did Zelensky, neither did Germany, neither did France. But I don't really think there's an actual threat to Europe for a Russian invasion of some sort. Russia has a very unique relationship with Ukraine. Ukraine is very different for Russia. They call it little Russia. It's always been that way. Ukrainians are little Russians. It's a very, very different relationship with Ukraine than, for example, Poland or the rest of Europe. So I don't know if this is, you know, I, 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 I don't know how great the threat actually is to Europe, but nonetheless, we're going to be spending tons of money. The United States spends on average about $800 million to NATO. The next the next uh, highest spend is something like 10 times less than that, 80 or 60 yeah. million dollars annually. So what? So now we're going to be defending Europe. I guess we draw we withdraw out of Afghanistan in order to go and spend a bunch of money on weapons for defending Europe against a threat. Like I said, I don't think is that big of a an actual threat. I could yeah, be I, wrong, well, but I agree with you. I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't think your, the rest of Europe is actually threatened, not right now at least, I, probably not ever, ever. Like you said, 
Uh, and it's different. It's a different circumstance, right? We're 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 arguing over over Ukraine, and you know, I think what Russia is doing is terrible, and they should absolutely stop. But they're what the claims they're making about Ukraine, like you said, are not claims they're making about the rest of Europe more generally. And and even if they were, isn't it a problem that the U.S. is virtually solely responsible for the death uh, yes. for the uh, for the defense of the right. free world? Um, like we we. American voters have indicated to their political leaders how many times that they don't want us to be the world police. They don't want uh, that. We, they don't want our government to take that role. They want our government to concentrate on problems domestically, issues that we're facing. They don't want this global policeman-like thing. And yet, that's, that's the role our government leaders doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter which party's in charge, frankly. Even though you know Trumpian Republicans talk about no, 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 we're going to be not world police. We're going to be domestically focused, it, it always ends up in this, no, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll protect all of Europe. Yeah, we'll, we'll stay in the Middle East forever. And it's, it's, it's not what the voters want. It's not what they want our government to do. Right. And I'd really like to know who is driving this NATO, this kind of NATO talk that we're going to be putting more forces right up on the border, uh, on the NATO border. I'm curious who's driving that because I'm not, you know, is it the United States is in the military industrial complex saying, hey, here's a great opportunity for us to have a reason to have to manufacture a lot more weapons? Is it the United States and the military industrial complex based in the United States that's driving it? Or is is it Europe? Are they genuinely afraid and they're really asking to to ramp up some NATO presence? Because, you know, with Europe, they're in a very delicate relationship with Russia as it is. Right. They cannot stop the supply of of natural gas from Russia into Europe. Russia has got them, uh, you know, in a pretty tough spot, especially right now in the summer. OK, they can get away with it. But come fall, I mean, once August hits, if they're not ensuring a steady supply of a hefty amount of natural gas from Russia, they're in a whirlwind of trouble in Europe. So I'm curious, are they the ones that are saying, oh, yeah, let's let's amp up this Cold War with Russia and make it worse. Or is it the United States and the and the big, powerful industries that are manufacturing these weapons? I think that's a good question to ask. Who's driving this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I I think we often it it seems like, right, it would be the moneyed interest. It would be, you know, the, the defense contractors, the people who make money, you know, building and selling these weapons. And I, I do think that's a part of it. But it's also it's just it's just political for I mean, we, we can't. How do we explain that the media is gung ho pro war? How do we explain that, you know, that not every political leader is profiting financially from that kind of hawkishness, even though hawkishness is just always the default. So it must be right. some it, it's it, it's ideological is what I'm saying, in addition to any kind sure. of pressure that right. Like it has to be. It's just the idea. Somehow it's the ideology of the people who seek out office, who, who seek out roles, planning national security, being involved in the process, who are who by default, I, I think, like think they can tinker or think, oh, if we put the troops here, we put the troops here, we do that. Like they, they approach it like they're playing risk or access and allies or something, which is not <laughs> the way and, are, you know, any normal thinking human approaches. Yeah. It, but the people who love to tinker and fiddle and plan they, they feel like it. They, they view it differently. Well, 
we know war gets clicks and that's good for the news business, yeah. right? They have to have some sort of scandal or trauma or drama um, in order to keep eyeballs glued to the screen. So this is just the new COVID, right? It was COVID for so long and now right. it's going to be, it's the war in Ukraine. And for politicians, it uh, it helps them feel and look powerful to their constituents. They get to uh, look like the strong man and people like to vote for a strong man. So I guess, maybe, but their constituents you know, cannot be clearer that they, we do not want, yeah. do not want this, this kind of, do not want overcommitment to right. defend other countries. But it's definitely well, a new attitude these days with the constituents. But yeah. I know we want to talk about the uh, more of the warmongering kind of rhetoric about genocide potentially in Ukraine. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan appeared on NBC, ABC and said the administration has not yet legally determined whether Russia has committed genocide. Let's watch. It was about a week ago that President Biden said that he didn't think this was genocide. Does he still stand by that, or, or is that calculation changing? We haven't yet reached a determination on genocide. That is a, a determination that we work through systematically. There is a unit at the State Department that gathers evidence and then makes a legal analysis because genocide is actually a legal determination. But let's set legalities aside for a minute, John. I think we can all say that these are mass atrocities, these are war crimes, these are shocking and brutal acts that are completely unacceptable beyond the pale for the international community. I mean, absolutely, definitely uh, terrible. Sullivan also revealed that Biden will not visit Ukraine after UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Kiev over the weekend. Kiev's mayor seemingly took a jab at Biden after the mayor said Johnson's visit showed the world whose Ukraine's real friends are. Um, I mean, look, it is atrocious. War is horrible. War crimes, atrocities, death, destruction. It is horrific what is happening to those Ukrainian civilians and, and the people that are being forced on both sides of this conflict to fight when they don't want to. It's, tr it's terrible. Genocide, though, is very charged language, and that is mm -hmm. meant to get people to rally around and say, yeah, we got to go in and we have to invade Russia. Genocide is the eradication of a group of people specifically. Like you're trying to get rid of that particular group. And I don't think Russia's trying to get rid of Ukrainians. That doesn't seem like that fits what's going on here. Right. I don't think so either. And also, we just have no idea. So I was actually glad to hear a government official say, well, we really don't know yet. How could we know yet? We barely have any comprehension about, you know, what the situation is on the ground. At least maybe they're privy to information we're not privy to. But, the, you know, the dueling kind of media narratives you can't trust. Obviously, you can't trust what you hear from Russian sources, but you, you also have to take with a grain of salt, as, as you do, Kim, and it's appropriate that, you know, what you hear from pro-Ukrainian sources. So I don't know how we could even make that determination. Well, and all, we kind of do know, because they're not going around slaughtering all these civilians. I mean, we are seeing right. instances of crimes, but by and large, you know, they're, they're trying not to target the civilians. So if they were trying to eradicate Ukrainians, they would be rounding them all up and doing a mass extermination of some kind or, you know, something along those lines. I mean, maybe you could make the case that they are trying to commit a genocide against the Nazis, that they, the people that they claim to be Nazis, the Azov Battalion. I think that could be a fair claim. I don't know, you know, so maybe there could be discussion on that, I suppose. I don't, I don't know if I, they're... It, it, maybe maybe they're trying not to target civilians. They've certainly killed a, a great deal of civilians because war... That's what happens yeah. in war. And it, it's a little weird to be like, oh, yeah, war is fine. But, oh, if it's genocide, then no, uh, that's no good. Like, <laughs> killing well, people is, a is bad. Like, right. a, 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 like, 
marching into someone's country and killing them is bad. Like whether the bomb falls on a building and all the people die in it, or they're like shot in the streets later. Like we're, we're starting to draw very weird distinctions. I think killing people is wrong, and it's sort of always where we go. Well, but this was really wrong because they this was their reason, and they it's it's just it's bad, and we have to like have a more committed anti-war ethos. So there's some kind of I, I think the genocide determination actually is one liberals want to wield because yeah. it speaks to a kind of uh, almost, well, well, then we can bring race into it. They're trying to, you know, cleanse right. an ethnic population, which is the, the modern liberal framework for discussing, like, all political issues. Well, what does it have to do with race? What does it have to do yeah. with identity? Like, I don't think that really fits the circumstance at all. It can just still be an appalling crime right. without, you know, fitting that kind of framework. Absolutely. Yeah. But U.S. intelligence is pushing the narrative that Putin may use Biden's support of Ukraine as a pretext to interfere in American politics. Uh, you know, that's mm. obviously that is something <laughs> they might do. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, too much has been made of their efforts uh, in the past that, you know, the kind of media obsession with the idea that Trump was ostensibly involved in colluding with Russia to steal the election and that, you know, their pathetic efforts on Facebook, like by, with Facebook groups and ads and targeted uh, social media stuff made this massive difference, which is just preposterous. And every like postmortem of the election has found that it didn't contribute yeah. anything. I mean, of, it's just extremely hypocritical to be yeah. like, oh, well, watch out for this next election because there might be something if the outcome isn't the way we want. Well, yeah. we know why. OK. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm so sick of both sides saying, yeah, I, I lost the election because of massive, uh, you know, a con conspiratorial unfair forces went up against me. I didn't just lose because the voters were sick of my BS. I lost. It's not my fault, which is a very both sides thing to do now now that we yeah, hate the phrase I, both I sides but they absolutely tell do you it. right now if biden loses in 2024 it is biden's fault i don't think anyone right now <laughs> believes that biden will win in 2024 meddling or no meddling by any outside <laughs> foreign power uh he's screwing it up on his own there's no need to blame it on anybody yeah. else yeah absolutely all right kim well we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next stick around What's on your radar, Kim? Well, yesterday I attended and spoke at the Defeat the Mandates LA rally, where a crowd of thousands descended in front of City Hall in a showing of solidarity against COVID-19 mandates. Now, many of you might be thinking, COVID is over. People have moved on with their lives. We're now mask-free, going back to bars, restaurants, gyms, work. Everything is back to normal. So why would anyone, let alone thousands, attend an anti-mandate rally? What mandates? Although many of us have gone back to what seems like our regular lives, the reality is there are still quite a few significant mandates in place and more being proposed by various state legislatures. For example, you still can't enter the United States if you're not an American citizen and you're unvaccinated. Previous infection doesn't count like it does in Europe. This means millions of Europeans who've had COVID passports due to having recovered from COVID in countries like France cannot enter the United States unless they get the vaccine. On top of this, numerous vaccines that are being offered in other countries are not accepted in the U.S. The Cuban-made vaccine, which is being widely used in South America, doesn't count, nor, nor does the Russian vaccine, which is nearly identical to AstraZeneca. This is keeping a number of families separated. 
Another mandate still around. Over a thousand colleges and universities require in-person students to be fully vaccinated against COVID, despite the fact young people have never been at risk of severe outcomes. The question then becomes, what do they consider to be fully vaccinated? Well, believe it or not, many universities are now requiring three doses, and some are even starting to require the fourth. Last Thursday, in a two-to-one vote, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals actually revived Biden's vaccine mandate for all federal executive branch employees. The appellate court ruled that the lower court didn't have the jurisdiction to put the stay on the mandate. The real reason, the reason they upheld it had actually nothing to do with the actual mandate itself. They just ruled that the lower court didn't have the authority and that the employees challenging the mandate have to use proper legal channels set up for them. But regardless of this being a procedural hurdle, as of right now, the mandate is once again active. Now, what's even crazier is that on top of these existing mandates that don't seem to be going away, governments are actually trying to implement new ones. Here in California, where I live, there is a law being proposed that would require all California employees and contractors to be fully vaccinated. Every working man, woman, and child would have to be vaccinated or lose their job in the state of California. Ironically, retired people, the people most at risk of a severe COVID outcome, wouldn't even be subjected to this requirement. It makes no sense at all. Another bill would require the COVID-19 vaccine for all public and private school children, regardless of whether or not the vaccine gets full FDA approval, if you can believe it or not. Uh, On top of this, they actually want to lower the age of vaccine consent to 12, meaning kids can decide without parental consent or knowledge to get the vaccine. Another alarming bill being proposed in California includes the creation of a state immunization tracking system, giving government agencies access to everyone's vaccine records. State lawmakers also want to ban doctors from giving any other opinion on COVID than the state-sanctioned one or else they face discipline by the medical board. And another bill takes a step in a step further and actually proposes to ban any person or entity from saying anything the government deems to be untrue. Lastly, if you think law enforcement is going to look the other way, think again. Another proposed bill requires law enforcement to enforce these laws or lose their funding. So you can see we're still not out of the woods. Many people are still very much affected by vaccine mandates and other draconian measures, even though it's now fairly well known that the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. It doesn't seem to matter. It's no longer about science. It's clearly political. We can either move on with the next big distracting thing, or we can continue to voice our dismay and let them know we haven't forgotten. And that's what thousands of us did yesterday. So believe it or not, Robbie, and I know, you know, now we know we're going to be talking about China and their very draconian lockdowns going on now. A lot of times that seems to sweep across the world. And and now there's even indications coming from like Fauci and others here that, well, this fall, this fall, we don't really know what's going to happen. And we're not out of the woods and we might be back to uh, more mandates, mask wearing, social distancing, closures of things. I mean, when is this going to end? The fact that they're even proposing more legislation on this rather than backing down and they're actually instead, and this is just the state of California, New York's got their own slew of of, uh, restrictions that they're wanting or mandates that they're wanting to put out there. Uh, So state by state, definitely the liberal states more so than the red states. But really, actually, one thing that I found interesting that I learned this weekend was that um, Mississippi, I believe Mississippi, I could be wrong, it might be Missouri, but both of them I think are red states, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They actually their universities have the strictest 
of the mandates for college students getting the vaccine to go to university. So, uh, I mean, what in the world are we doing? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, are the college students going to overwhelm the hospitals? I mean, I don't understand. <laughs> well, the colleges you know. have the most insane COVID policies of all because I write a lot about college campuses. I get emails all the time from students, from professors, from, you know, from liberals who say you, you would not believe we were, you know, we're triple, quadruple, eight tuple vaccinated. And also we right. still have to wear masks and socially distance. And, you know, they say if there's a single case on campus, then we're going to be, you know, it's just it's going back to remote. Utterly why they, so, then insane. It, so then it's just why are they even mandating this for the students? I mean, right. why tell them they have to do it if they're still going to have to wear masks? They still end up having to do virtual schooling. I mean, what's the, they, they still can't hang out and do fun. Th- their, their college lives, their years of college are just not the years of college you and right. I experienced. So, you know, at some point, it feels like the authority figures, the people who impose these things are just trying to erode the idea that we can resist. tyranny. I don't like I know that sounds crazy. I get that most of them are well-meaning people who I think this is for our health. But we have so much we are equipped with so much science and so many figures and stats to say, actually, this doesn't help nearly as much as, as you claim it does, except, you know, the, the vulnerable certainly should get vaccinated. I still think it should be their choice. But, you know, all, all that aside, it, you, you're, not, you're not really stemming these waves with the various proposals you're saying yeah. should be mandatory. And that's so clear. So at some point, it's just like, well, we're making you do it because we, we want to make we, you right. do things. We want That's you really, to realize you live in a society where we get to tell you what to do, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's a really, really interesting and good point. I'd be really curious to find out with these thousand universities, for example, what sort of funding are they getting and where do they get their funding that makes that makes certain universities want to, you know, what what's the decision making process that kind of gets them to this point? Who do they have on their boards that helps make these mm-hmm. decisions? Um, because you're right. I mean, Maybe they are in a way, I hate to use the word grooming, because uh, I know that's like the word that is like the trending word of the day. Oh my God, I don't want to hear that word again. Everybody's <laughs> but, a groomer. Everybody's right, a groomer. Ugh. Right, yeah. right. Well, it's, it's, it the, does, it's the equivalent of everyone is a racist that the left uses. Now conservatives right, saying everyone who disagrees with us, groomer. Is a Ugh. groomer, right. But are they grooming these college students right. to be compliant right. and to say don't question it, which is so strange. In universities and colleges, that's where you go to, to begin oh, your no, questioning I, oh, I, No, they are grooming them to be compliant, yes. They're not grooming them to be sexually abused, which is the... No, but the groomer the but, groomer term, by the way, I've learned is not... I, I thought yeah. it was all just about like pedophilia when they were talking about groomers, but actually they mean grooming for anything. It's like you're grooming people towards compliance. You're grooming them for... So right. they use it more broadly, like when you talk to James Lindsay, for example. But um, r- yeah, right. I mean, t- just teaching them, like, look, you're going to be the next generation of leaders in this country. You're going to be the next generation of, of our business owners, our CEOs, our leaders, and you need to learn that uh, you just comply and you don't ask questions and it doesn't matter if the science, don't think about that. This is just about compliance. That is a very scary thought. And then that's creating a society, by the way, which I think is even uh, in a lot of ways more dangerous to, we're now hearing a lot of chatter about don't send your kids to school, right? So a lot of people are saying homeschool your kids or don't send them off to university. And I don't know if if every parent, I know I'm not at, I'm not uh, an adequate teacher to teach my children. If I were to homeschool them, I don't think I would have the skill set 
you know, <laughs> I don't remember algebra, so I'm not going to be able to do it. Uh, you know, so so, I, well, soon, soon neither will any of the kids in California because well, they I mean. they don't want to even teach them algebra actually because and what if some kids too. aren't as good as it uh, good at it as other kids and then there's and then there's that so I guess we've yeah. got a big education problem moving forward which is where are the kids going to learn if a lot of people don't want to send their kids to if kids don't want to go to college anymore because they don't want to be mandated to do things um, if parents are going to pull their kids out of out of schools and homeschool them where does this leave the future generation when it comes to their how educated they're going to be. I know now, look, I do, there are plenty of people who educate their kids at home and they're fantastic at it. One of my best friends does it. Um, and she's a way better teacher than mm -hmm. what she could send her kids to school in. Same thing with my uncle, who's a school teacher. When COVID hit, my nieces and nephews went and learned from him. They got excellent educations. That's not the case for most of the kids though. And we know that. We know that most of the kids that got stuck at home did not get as good of educations. So that's mm -hmm. just a reality for a lot of them. So if we create a society like that because we're mandating all these things, what are we going to be left with when we're in our elder years, Robbie? Who's going to be leading this country and how smart are they going to be? And Well, that's, know, that's many uh, years away, Kim. So. Many so I guess not. No. Don't worry about it. Kick the can down the road. It'll be fine. I was just, I was just telling our audience how young we are. That's really what I was Oh, thinking. right, right. That's right. Well, you anyway, at least for <laughs> sure. But, but yeah, mandates are still there. We have to defeat the mandates. They're still very much with us. Do not stop and think, oh, no, it's all gone. It's all over. It just isn't, no. unfortunately. No, it is not. It should be, but it's not. It should be. Yeah. But anyway. All right, Robbie, I think we've got your radar. That's coming up next. Looking forward to it. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, in what should serve as a major blow to the credibility of federal law enforcement agents, a district court jury acquitted two men accused of plotting to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Remember that whole storyline? Well, the jury deadlocked on the charges against two other defendants, and if prosecutors want to put them away, they'll have to retry them, according to the New York Times. So Brandon Caserta and Daniel Harris were acquitted on all charges they faced. Adam Fox and Barry Croft will be eligible for retrial. So prosecutors have to cope, though, with the considerable humiliation of squandering what had appeared, at least to resistance liberals, as a slam dunk case. Remember, all we heard about the kidnappers and their elaborate plot and, and all these people were involved. Well, no convictions yet. So this is an embarrassing outcome for both the FBI, which had relied on a vast network of informants that were extensively involved in planning and even encouraging the plot, as well as Whitmer herself, who treated the plot with utter seriousness and connected it to former President Donald Trump's irresponsible rhetoric. In reality, Whitmer was never in actual danger. Big Dan, that was the ringleader of the alleged plot, contacted law enforcement early on. The FBI paid him $54,000 to conduct six months of surveillance on a loose network of militia members who were upset with Whitmer's aggressive COVID-19 lockdown policies and, and were complaining about them online. When the group staked out Whitmer's house, it was Big Dan, the FBI informant, who was the one leading the effort with the FBI's foreknowledge and, foreknowledge and encouragement. At the same time, Big Dan's FBI handler, a man named Jason Chambers, he was attempting to start a side business as a security consultant. So he had every incentive to construct a major domestic terrorism bust that he could take credit for foiling. 
As the Times reported, quote, no attack ever took place, no final date for an abduction was set, the testimony showed, and the details of the alleged plan sometimes differed from witness to witness. The FBI informant Dan Chappell said he believed the group planned to kill Ms. Whitmer, whose handling of the COVID-19 pandemic had infuriated the men. Ty Garbin, the man who earlier pled guilty in, in the case, said he thought the group of men might abandon the governor in a boat in the middle of Lake Michigan. Another man who pleaded guilty, Caleb Frank, said he had hoped to die in a shootout with the governor's security detail. So those were two people who, who pleaded guilty and then were participating. They probably regret doing that since there's, there was no conviction of the people who actually went to trial. Uh, quote, there was no plan to kidnap the governor and there was no agreement between these four men. It's what Joshua Blanchard, a lawyer for Mr. Croft, said in his closing arguments. He said the government tried to conjure up a conspiracy by using a network of informants and undercover agents and that, quote, without a plan, the snitches needed to make it look like there was movement toward a plan. That's all from The New York Times. And it's correct. So the FBI, of course, has a long history of engaging in entrapment i.e. inducing people to plan crimes that they had no intention or ability carrying out. The victims of these prosecutions have often been Muslims, though right-wing groups are also a common target of overzealous law enforcement. So it appears that the jury possessed reasonable and well-justified doubt that there was ever any actual plot to kidnap Whitmer, despite the FBI's attempts to manufacture one. Maybe Whitmer herself should retract the praise she had for federal law enforcement. Remember this? Just last week, the President of the United States stood before the American people and refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups like these two Michigan militia groups. Stand back and stand by, he told them. Stand back and stand by. Hate groups heard the President's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry. But this entire idea that the FBI prevented MAGA terrorists from kidnapping Gretchen Whitmer is a lie. She was never in any danger. The plot was organized and engineered by federal law enforcement. The right-wing militiamen were morons engaged in heated rhetoric. The government goaded them into considering committing bigger crimes. And that's all that happened. Now, of course, the mainstream media and liberals are reacting very normally, taking it all in stride. I kid, of course. Here's Joy Reid. Unreal. So in America, in the year of our Lord 2022, you can plot to kidnap a Democratic woman governor to stage a show trial and hurt her or worse because you don't like COVID restrictions and walk as long as you're a white right wing extremist. Holy jury nullification, Batman. Look, it's actually just holy due process, Batman. The government is not supposed to trick people into committing crimes they weren't capable of committing without the FBI's help in order to make themselves out to be heroes, protecting Democrats from angry citizens. So, uh, Kim, I don't know how closely you follow this. I was actually in Michigan over the weekend. I'm from Michigan. Um, I didn't have not lived there at, during the time Whitmer has been governor. But, you know, she had this press conference, uh, you know, back after the, the arrests and just totally attributed it to Trump's rhetoric and you know, thanked FBI for protecting and saving her. And they can't get, they can't convict anyone in this trial because the yeah. jury looks at the evidence and says, well, they weren't going to they weren't doing anything without the FBI's help. So I'm, I'm glad to see the FBI rebuked. Now, I, I was I was not positive this would be the outcome. This is the outcome I agree with. I didn't necessarily know it would turn out this way because in a lot of cases where I think it's entrapment, uh, the law enforcement you know, has done a, a, a good, an adequate job of, of saying, well, yeah, we helped them along, but you know, they still did it, so, or they still went along with it, so they 
committed the crime, they're guilty. Yeah. And that usually works, but it, it didn't work this time. Yeah, I'm glad that you're giving us updates on this because it is such a an interesting, fascinating case and, and such a fascinating, I think, abuse of power and abuse of the FBI's role. I mean, they originally arrested, I believe, 14 people for this kidnapping plot. Uh, then we discover that 12 people, so some that were in the plot and some that were not, were FBI informants. 12 right. people were involved in helping create this whole thing. Then they ended up with six that they ultimately charged, right? So they arrested a bunch, but they ultimately only charged six. Two of them that you mentioned pled guilty. Uh, one, Garvin, I believe, got like six years and $2,500 fine or something along those lines. I'm not sure what Frank Scott. Um, and now what we're finding out is that the remaining four, like you mentioned, going to trial ended up two of them getting acquitted and two of them now have to be retried. Mm -hmm. So, right. I mean, this is a very flimsy. I mean, the fact that Garbin only got a 20 I mean, and, and even then he was uh, he pled guilty to conspiring right. or plotting. He probably shouldn't it have. <laughs> he probably right, yeah, feels maybe really stupid have. for pleading guilty. I mean, he's there. Okay, these people were really stupid on a variety of let like they should not have said the things they said. You know, they got tricked by law enforcement, but there was just no like she was never in danger. They knew the whole time right. the FBI did. So it's just well, such a ridiculous. It's just continuing to manufacture the narrative mm -hmm. that people who, you know, right wing people, supporters of Trump are dangerous white supremacists that we must defeat at all costs, that we cannot let them have right. any power or run the government or have any say. And then on top of it, of course, everything that they agree with and everything they politically believe in is a white supremacist talking point. You know, that's what mm -hmm. we now even with COVID. Right. It was like white supremacist talking point. Every, even now, Ukraine and I mean, everything. If you go against you're now part of this, you know, crazy group that's that's doing things like kidnapping the governor of Michigan, you know, plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan and amongst many other things. Um, and so. You know, but it, 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 that manufacturing of fear, you know, this is what the Democrats have reeled into. And I know Republicans are doing it a lot, too, with the whole, you know, everybody's a pedophile groomer, right? right. Like we're seeing that kind of rise in Republican circles. Big mistake on their part to go down that path. Stick to the policies. Stick to building the middle class. Absolutely. Stick to helping people live better lives. Once you reel into these sort of crazy, you know, everybody's a, a, a racist or everybody's a pedophile, you lose the vast majority mm -hmm. of voters. You know, it, it's just not speaking to the minds of most Americans. Right. And it just makes everybody look absolutely nuts. And then <laughs> we end up with all these people, you know, in jail. We've got a lot of people still sitting in jail, um, you know, for January 6th, for example, that haven't even been haven't gone to trial. And, you know, they've been there now for a year and a half getting close to a year and a half. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know. We're just kind of reeling into a space, you know, and, and then meanwhile, inflation's through the roof and the middle class is dwindling at a rapid pace. <laughs> and yeah. this is the stuff we focus on. And these you know, are too. all, by the way, these are all tactics used by law enforcement against uh, Muslims in the wake of 9-11. Yeah, it was. Tactics right. that were strongly condemned by many liberals, many progressives, and, and I'm, I'm sure there are, and many of them, like our esteemed co-host Brian Grimm, is still criticizing, you know, those right. kinds of practices. But some liberals totally, now that those, those practices are being used against the people they perceive to be their enemies, the, the, the Trump wing, the right wing, the MAGA people. Yeah, then it's okay. It's like, oh, yeah, well, that's fine. Right. It's just going after white supremacy.
Well, and this has been going on, I think, even prior to 9-11 and Muslims. I, I think we just start mm -hmm. to really have it come out more. You know, more people are paying attention to this. But I'm sure this was going on during the McCarthy era, era with the witch hunt of communists. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm positive it went on during the anti-war protests of Vietnam. I mean, I, I'm positive that they were setting people up. They were entrapping people, throwing people in jail, making an example of them and using them for political fodder. And, you know, uh, now we just we know a bit more of it, but nonetheless, it doesn't seem to stop it from happening. You know, yeah. that's how do we stop it? Yeah, we no, just we, gotta keep we need major it, reform of law enforcement and something conservatives were br briefly interested in when Trump was railing against the deep state. He was wrong. He, you know, he was right. But it was wrong. To, the, the problem with the deep state is not that they're just making life difficult for one person. Donald Trump, the most powerful man in the world, they, they, they do a lot of nefarious things just in general. So we need to yeah. reform the whole system, not just make it nicer to Donald Trump. Although some of those abuses were very real, the FISA abuses, etc. I've criticized them, but it's like the right wing interest in it was only sustainable as long as Donald Trump was the victim of it, which was a little frustrating. But. Yeah. And yesterday, you know, when I was at the Defeat the Mandate rally here in Los Angeles, I saw a bunch of plain clothed you know, F maybe FBI, I'm not really mm. sure what they were, but, you know, they had the earpiece and they're like walking around looking normal, hanging out in the crowd and you can see them in there. It's like, oh, maybe they're just, you know, hopefully not plotting. Nothing happened. So <laughs> well, but, they're, they're doing that. What's the uh, um, Steve Buscemi meme? The how do you do my fellow kids where he's like dressed as a skateboarder in a high school? <laughs> how do you do my fellow non-FBI? Well. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, our rising panel will join us next. So stick around. Well, new financial disclosure reports are fueling speculation that the 2024 GOP presidential primary is anything but decided. As reported by CNN this weekend, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in command of a massive $100 million war chest for his upcoming re-election race. And though a re-election bid is all the Sunshine State's governor appears to be planning on the surface, he's continued to be chasing the national spotlight on hot-button culture war issues such as the so-called Don't Say Gay bill and parents' rights and education. They continue to raise suspicion that DeSantis's ambitions far exceed just another four years in Tallahassee. DeSantis has also sought to motivate his base, specifically around his public beef with the Walt Disney Corporation, having accused the company of abusing its cushy standing in local Florida politics to spread, quote, radical corporate wokeness. And all signs seem to suggest it's working. DeSantis was given a rock star's welcome at a UFC wow. appearance he made in Jacksonville this Saturday. The governor remains steadily popular in his state with recent St. Leo University polling showing 58% of Floridians approve of his job performance. A rising panel joins us now. Julia Manchester is a political reporter for The Hill, and Philip Wegman is a White House reporter for Real Clear Politics. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Morning. So, Julia, 58% is a pretty impressive uh, approval rating in this era of just relentless partisan bickering. You can't get 58% of America to agree to anything. So the <laughs> fact that DeSantis, you know, despite absolutely participating in the culture war, he is he is not, you know, gotten it to the where he, he only has you know the diehard MAGA in his corner. He he clearly has appeal well beyond that, uh, which would serve him well if he sought any higher office. What do you think? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think a lot of this comes back to Florida's economy throughout the coronavirus pandemic or for most of it, with the exception of, you know, April and May of 2020, we've seen Florida mostly open for the most part. And we've seen Ron DeSantis very much give localities in Florida the choice to stay open or closed. And we know that Florida's economy obviously depends very much on hospitality, travel, tourism. So a lot of um, cities and localities in uh, Florida have stayed open and that's helped the economy. We've seen Florida fare economically better than other states. So DeSantis definitely has that going for him. You know, in terms of the cultural wars though, we'll have to see. I think a lot of voters, people who are being polled, they're giving their their, their opinions for the most part based on the economy or making that assumption. Um, And the economy in Florida has been doing very well. At the same time though, we do see rent prices prices, the price of goods like they are across the country skyrocketing in Florida recently. And that's been a point of debate down in the Sunshine State. But uh, DeSantis can definitely uh, rely on a relatively strong economy. We don't really know how the culture wars will play for him, though. This seems like a much uh, more of a base issue for him. And that leads us to the 2024 conversation. Um, You know, where does that leave him? How does that boost him with Republican primary voters? I think we'll have to see. Yeah, Phil, I want to ask you about that because, you know, Disney is obviously a very, I think it's the largest private employer or um, largest corporate employer in in Florida. Uh, And DeSantis is picking a fight with them. I mean, he is, so Disney's got this special provision in Florida. They've kind of, their 24,000 acres are carved out. They basically get to run it like their own little government. And because of it, they get special provisions. And DeSantis is now saying to them because of their, I, I, you know, obviously them coming out saying that they're going to have half of all of their characters somehow representative of, of minority groups. Um, and then, of course, we've got the, 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 the so-called don't say gay bill. What is it really called? It's the parental rights and education bill. So he's got all of this kind of, you know, that, that, that kind of focuses on that uh, sexual conversation with kids up to the third grade, I believe. So what do you think is going to happen with, with this being a big employer in the state, as Julia just mentioned, Tourism and travel are big economy factors for Florida. So is he barking up the wrong tree? Is he picking the wrong fight right now with Disney? Or do you think that this is going to fuel his base even more and he's going to become even more popular? Right. It it depends on how you see this fight and what camp you sit in. If you are in the media or you're, you know, left of center, I think that as you observe what Ron DeSantis is doing right now, your reaction is probably going to be similar to the way that he dealt with COVID. Um, He's certainly uh, positioning himself to win favor with the Republican base, with conservatives, not necessarily independents or folks who are left of center. And I think that um, while there were perhaps some independents who might have liked him on the COVID stuff, maybe they will eventually see uh, this fight with Disney on, um, you know, the the culture war. Maybe they see that as going too far. I think that uh, Julia was correct when she was, you know, really prudent a second ago and said, you know, we, we just don't know. But what we can see uh, so far outside of, of national polling is, is we can look at that $100 million that he's got in his war chest. Um, that's one of the best barometers that we've got. Where are people willing to put their cash? And I think the very first thing that that big number suggests is that he's able to at least uh, mount some kind of primary challenge against Donald Trump if uh, that's the direction that he chooses to go. But I think the other thing that is overlooked but also just as important 
is that if DeSantis has some sort of White House ambitions, he realizes that it's going to be scorpions in a bottle down in Florida. Not only would he have to uh, take on Trump, uh, before that, in all likelihood, he would have to either compete against or convince two other folks to stay out of the race. And that's, uh, you know, Senator Scott and Senators Rubio. So I think that, you know, time will tell. Obviously, there are potential rivals in Florida. Um, what I think this does say, though, is that for anyone who suggested that Ron DeSantis was just going to be a flash in the pan, that he was going to be, um, you know, only part of the uh, pandemic conversation, uh, they were wrong. He continues to be a foil to the Biden White House and certainly uh, the base loves him, but we have to see whether or not other voting groups are going to appreciate his style. Yeah, that's a good point. But he is he is showing, as I, I think you just pointed out, he's showing a good uh, sense of of the culture war and its importance and not just covid, but you know, being against um, the wokeness on it and honestly doing it almost more thoughtfully than I, I think some in the than, than Trump has at some points. Obviously, he read the the kind of COVID, uh, the uh, mandate, vaccine mandate resistance uh, better than uh, the former president. But speaking of the former president, so DeSantis wasn't the only GOP frontrunner who pulled an enthusiastic crowd this weekend. President Trump held a rally in North Carolina where he teased rally goers with another presidential run. Let's watch. <laughs> and now we may have to do it again. Is there anybody here who would like to see me run again? Oh, boy, who's the bigger rock star, Trump or DeSantis? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so this comes just after the former president made a surprise endorsement of Dr. Oz for Pennsylvania's Senate race, sending shockwaves across Trump world. And I saw... I saw a lot of criticism of this actually from pretty right wing, pretty Trump loyal people uh, not happy with the Dr. Oz endorsement. Uh, Dr. Oz, I think, is seen by a, a lot of these figures as not a sufficiently committed America for I mean, not sufficiently committed to anything. Right. He's a, a celebrity doctor. Uh, Julia, you know, what are you uh, seeing in how this is is shaking out and the, the fallout from this endorsement from you know Trump aligned forces? Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about, about this endorsement is Trump and Dr. Oz share that in common, previously being celebrities before they jumped into, particularly in television, before they jumped into politics. So I think, you know, part of President Trump's endorsement, you know, he could revolved around the fact that, you know, he held a lot, had a lot in common with Dr. Oz when it came to their backgrounds and, you know, building a television uh, reality show-esque empire and then jumping into politics. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely splits uh, the GOP field and obviously uh, some of Trump world with some Trump loyalists obviously not being happy with this endorsement. But, you know, we're going to continue to see this play out through other primaries in the Senate if President Trump decides to endorse. In Ohio, for example, they're having a primary in just a few weeks in their Senate GOP race. He has yet to endorse there, but, you know, we are seeing, you know, a competition really evolve in that primary for his endorsement and his backing. So we're going to see this really play out, I think, in a number of races going forward. And it's going to be a test of President Trump's endorsement. You know, if 
Oz does not win the primary or if whoever he endorses in other Senate races, if that candidate doesn't win the primary, you know, there's going to be serious questions about President Trump's political brand and really his staying power within the Republican Party two years after he left office. Yeah, I mean, Philip, what do you think? Do you think that Trump, uh, you know, he, of course, in front of a crowd that's coming out to see him, they're going to cheer. They're, yeah, come yeah. <laughs> But what do you think the general sentiment is in the Republican Party amongst the voters? Do you think they would welcome him back with cheering open arms? I think that obviously you've got Trump endorsing Oz and it makes sense for all of the reasons that Julia just mentioned. Um, it also doesn't make sense when you take a closer look at the policy positions that he took during his medical daytime talk show, uh, whether it was on you know, the life issue, whether it was on um, LGBTQ issues. There are a number of areas where Oz is very much outside of the conservative mainstream. Trump seems to have looked past that and instead seen an outsider like himself, and, and that's why he endorsed. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see if that works out. Uh, obviously, Trump has been unhappy with some of the candidates that he's endorsed recently. I mean, he, he pulled his support for uh, Representative Mo Brooks down there in Alabama. Um, and I think that what we'll see is uh, he'll have a scorecard going into, you know, the 2024 midterms. People will be able to look at the candidates that he supported and say, look, does this guy know how to you know, find a winner? Is, does he have, um, you know, the, the party's best interest at heart or his own? Uh, but, you know, something that, that uh, I was thinking about with the recent confirmation of Justice uh, Jackson recently is if you talk to uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill and maybe you get them in private or, you know, you have a candid conversation with them, um, they'll tell you that they believe uh, that it was Trump who lost Republicans in the Senate. Um, in fact, uh, Chris Christie said this on the record at the beginning of the Biden administration when he was talking about how if Trump had been more focused on, you know, Senators Leffler and Purdue rather than on uh, the previous presidential election, then those guys probably would have been elected. Then, mm-hmm. you know, Build Back Better is no longer part of the conversation. Then it's not the bipartisan infrastructure um, bill. Then it's also not, you know, these Supreme Court confirmations uh, that, that we just saw. So he's got a mixed record on this. Um, you know, the people who are in politics because they love Trump, I don't think that's ever going to change. Uh, but, you know, we might see the emergence of, of voters who say to themselves, I, I've got my favorites, but ultimately the person that I'm going to pull the lever for is the person who I think can most reliably beat Joe Biden. Mm. And, um, you know, if they see these losses stack up in, in Trump's corner, that might change things. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. Julia Phillip, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. The federal investigation into the president's son is heating up and gaining more traction from the mainstream than ever. Over the weekend, we learned that Hunter's lucrative business dealings often included giving as much as 50 percent of his earnings to his dad, President Joe Biden, according to text messages on the old laptop. The text read, quote, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years, Hunter allegedly said to his daughter Naomi in 2019, quote, it's really hard, but don't worry. Unlike Pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. Pop is in reference to the president. Deputy Editor at Newsweek, Bajia Ungar Sargon, joins us now to discuss. So what do you make of that? Wow. Listen, I mean... 
It really does give you a different lens with which to view Joe Biden, don't you think? I mean, yep. It's that's not great stuff. And, you know, it, a lot of the people who refuse to cover it are continuing to insist that this wouldn't have impacted the outcome of the election. And that's really an unknowable. Right. But at the same time, I mean, this specifically, the 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 level with which, you know, President Biden, you know, is alleged by his son to have benefited from his shady dealings and just the idea of him literally profiting off of it, taking that money as a it's it's kind of it really does change how you think about the man. I mean, it does to me. This was the first thing I sat back and went, wow, that really I don't know. I can't say for certain that that would not have changed my vote. What about you guys? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's he, obviously this speaks of corruption, like plain and simple. This is a corrupt politician. And the problem is, is that people look at somebody like Joe Biden. He smiles. He's nice. And now he's like old and forgetful. And so people don't equate him as easily to corruption as somebody like Donald Trump, for example, who's out there, who's saying rude, crass things, who's upsetting people. Uh, And so it's easier to make that guy into a villain, that guy into somebody who's corrupt. But I mean, look, these text messages, this isn't Hunter Biden saying, oh, and I'm giving it to pop, you know, just as a not, you know, because I want to take care of my old man. He's saying I'm being forced to give him half. That is, I mean, Wow, bombshell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, he is, you know, a crackhead, right? He is maybe, you know, there's there, there's a world in which, you know, he's misunderstood something. He's not exactly a reliable reporter, but if that is the case, if that is literally how it went down, you know, if if his father gave him the impression that that is what's going on here, I agree with you. I mean, this is just just like a textbook example of corruption and one can only imagine how the press would have treated it if one of the Trump kids had uh. been exposed doing something like this, right? I mean, the hypocrisy is really Really, right. really difficult to bear. What, whichever side of the aisle you're on. Well, and you know what? I don't know a single crackhead, by the way, who would willingly give up half of their salary. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that that's the that's the problem. You note, Bacha. You know, if if there are voters out there who are principled anti-family corruption voters, I mean, <laughs> just gonna have to vote third party, like like I do. <laughs> so because there's not a not a great options in terms of the the Trumps, the Bidens, the Clintons, etc. For the kind of personal, you know, using nepotism to in, to enrich in both ways, etc. This is beyond that. You know, this is yeah. beyond that. I mean, yeah. this is this is Joe Biden benefiting off of his relationships, using his son in order to facilitate that. I mean, this is more corruption than I think we've seen um, coming from really in any other situation. I mean, hard evidence of it being a corrupt politician using their position of power in order to gain a lot of money. I mean, this is really bad. I, and the thing is, everyone focuses on Hunter, but it's not Hunter is just the mechanism for which the corruption happened. The corruption would be on Joe's end, not on Hunter's end. Right. You know, I mean, this would be, I I don't know what the consequences of something like this are, but I would imagine they should be serious. Well, Bacha, you know, I think it's an issue that who can trust the media, the gatekeepers of our democracy to report on this and to find out the truth? Because, right, this isn't, Hunter's is not a reliable narrator, so that we don't know what this means. But do you trust, maybe now, but certainly not in the run-up to the election, 
the media to look at this critically and then credibly tell us what we should think about it. I, we, we can't trust them to do that. And we, we couldn't, then we couldn't trust social media to let us talk about it. They still will not say we got this wrong. Like mm -hmm. they still will not explain how they got it wrong and how they're going to not get it wrong next time. They are still defending the decision to censor this story, to call it Russian disinformation. You know, the only outlet, as far as I can tell, that actually had a mea culpa was the Washington Post. And of course, they waited until the New York right. Times led the way, admitting that it was real, right? I mean, the, and it was the, the, the most pathetic mentality. mea culpa I've ever read. Exactly. But... <laughs> it was so weak. But just the herd mentality, how no one is willing to speak up for the truth, like they act as um, you know, as a kind of monolith covering each other's butts because mm -hmm. nobody wants to be the one taking on the wrath of left-wing Twitter. It's really appalling. And you still have people out there saying this wouldn't have changed the, the election. This was only about Hunter. It was not about Joe Biden. This was irrelevant. It was right for us to censor this. And I think what it shows is how much disdain the liberal media has for the average mm -hmm. American voter. They, they think their job is to keep information from voters yeah. so voters won't act reasonably on it, right? As opposed to to their actual job, which is to present the voters with information and let them make up their own mind because that is what democracy is about. And you have these places being like democracy dies in darkness when literally they see their jobs as antithetical to what a democracy is. Yeah, yeah they don't they don't trust us with the information exactly. because they think that we're going to make bad choices. So they yeah. have to be the adult in the room and censor the information. But what do you think is going to happen? I mean, Republicans are likely going to gain control over the House and probably the Senate in the midterms. Do you think they're going to be investigating Joe Biden? And do you think that the media is going to really, truly look at this and say, OK, well, he deserves to be investigated? Or do you think they're going to spin it and say, oh, this is just uh, Republicans? You know, this is partisan. I mean, I, I, I mean, the, the, the evidence just continues to mount. So I don't know how they could do that. But what do you think is going to happen? I mean, unfortunately, I've I've been pretty convinced that if they're when the Republicans retake the House, they will find an excuse to, you know, impeach Joe Biden, whatever it is. Right. We're in sort of like impeachment revenge mode, I think, on the right. on the Republican side. And so I, I think, sure, yeah, they're going to throw whatever they can at him just as revenge, you know, over the double impeachment of Donald Trump. And, you know, so, I mean, it's very hard for me to imagine that we'll ever have a president again who's not impeached. It's sort <laughs> of the, the cynical part of me, no. especially looking at where this Republican Party is at its pettiness, its vindictiveness, you know, its inability to just take the win that the Democrats are presenting them mm -hmm. by being crazy and the need to like out out crazy the Democrats, mm -hmm. like however crazy they get. So yes, definitely. Although I do think that I mean, I would like answers about a lot of the stuff on this laptop, and I do not trust the liberal media to give them to me. Luckily, there's conservative media in America as well, and I say that as a lefty, like you know, you have to want, you have to really read everything in order to just get a sense of what's happening. Yeah, all my enemies are racists or all my enemies are groomers. You have to take your exactly. pick of your preferred extremist <laughs> yeah. narrative. Pick well, your Bacha, side. <laughs> uh, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Three Chinese government officials in Shanghai were fired late last week over their bungled handling of the city's latest COVID-19 lockdown. Widespread food shortages have pushed the city of 26 million people 
to the brink. Lockdowns were supposed to end in early April, but were extended indefinitely late last week. Subsequent supermarket shutdowns, delivery service closures have left Shanghai residents housebound, hungry and desperate. Now, the pictures you see here, that is 16 days, that food right there, 16 days worth of government food rations provided to NYU Shanghai professor Rodrigo Zaden's family of three since first entering lockdown in March. Rodrigo says he and his neighbors have been forced to collectively barter for food from wholesale sellers. Professor Zaden joins us now from lockdown in Shanghai. Thank you so much for being here with us. So, I, I mean, that is definitely not a lot of food that they gave you there. Uh, you're saying no. that you're having to barter. I mean, give us kind of the rundown of what life is like for you right now in lockdown in Shanghai. So lockdown in Shanghai, it actually reminds me of growing up in the 80s in Brazil during hyperinflation, which means that that life was uncertain, right? You You didn't know what would be the prices of everything. Uh, you didn't know what you would get. Um, you, at the time, you need to spend much money as much as as fast as possible. That's not the case today. Uh, the problem is not access to money. Prices are actually not rising uh, by decree, which means that. But access is 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 the problem, right? In a way, we turn into hunter gatherers, get gatherers, right? We turn into my family, my wife and I, uh, especially in the beginning, not so much today, but especially in the beginning, we were like, we have calories. Our problem is not the quantity of food. The problem is, is the quantity of the food that we would like to eat or, or variety and things like that. So we had to find ways to manage um, how to get food, and we don't speak Chinese, Fortunately, we have a neighbor who speaks perfect, perfect English who have, has helped us tremendously. Uh, but yeah, the community banded together and we would go and buy um, as much as possible of whatever we could get our hands on and trade with neighbors if that's the case. Um, we were able to get some extra salt. We gave it to a neighbor that was getting desperate, um, a, an, another neighbor her, her kitchen knife broke down. We had an extra one. We found a way to take it to her community that was on a different lockdown than us. It's it's an interesting so, sociological experience um, mm. coming mm. to a to a city where it's not your home country and having to, in a way, try to survive in a very flexible way. Yeah. Oh, it's, well, it sounds terrifying and difficult, obviously. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what actually are the rules? So you're you're not supposed to leave a certain area or your home or, you know, what, you know, what is the actual, what what is the policy like? So the policies have changed over time. Um, our, uh, the official lockdown came on March 27th and it was supposed to last for four days. And it was supposed to be a tough lockdown to break the chain of COVID to the point that all groceries and, and supermarkets were closed. Our compound, because we had a positive case, not on our, not on our building, but on, on another building, our compound shut down earlier on March 24th. It meant that we could go out in the compound. We had picnics, like life went as, uh, life 
went on as as normal as it could be under the circumstances. Everything changed on March 27. It was a really tough lockdown. We didn't have time to prepare. And the four days turned into five, turned into six, turned into 10. And that's, that's the situation we are right now. Um, there was one or two communities in Shanghai that were open today for the first time, but most of the store, like 99% of the city is still closed. And we still have, we, we, we still have to manage our food purchases very actively. We spend so are you, a huge amount of time doing that. Are you allowed to leave your house? I am allowed to leave my house. I am allowed to leave my building. Um, what happens is that we, our, I live in a high-end compound, much better situation than migrant workers and, 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 and the poor citizens in Shanghai. Um, but people are not doing that. It's not that we cannot walk around our compound. Some people do. There is somebody playing mini golf um, um, in the lawns in, in the compounds. Um, but w people are self-isolating, especially people in my building, because we have now cases in almost half of the buildings and they are all sealed off. We really don't want to be in that situation, right? We don't want to be sealed off in a way that we're not allowed to leave our apartments. So people can get out of their buildings and walk around the compound, but but we mostly keep to ourselves. Hmm. We would be, we can, if if we really want to, we can. But most people don't. Well, over the past few days, multiple videos purported to show angry Shanghai residents protesting against the lockdowns. So these have emerged. Bloomberg reports that some of the videos were removed from Chinese social media. So could you tell us more about the attitudes toward these lockdowns where you are? And have you seen any protesting? How, how do the people you know, that you've talked to feel about this at this point? Um, most people that I know are immensely frustrated. There is this belief in the U.S. that that people in China don't protest. It's the opposite, right? Protest is, is how people voice their concerns in China. You do not protest against the central government, of course, but it's the way that you keep local politicians in check, right? So protests, the, the protests that you are seeing, these are part and parcel of the way, the, the usual way that, that Chinese people go about um, getting some accountability into their political system as much as they can given that this is not a democracy, right? Um, so that's that's why sometimes politicians that are afraid of those those protests and they answer to their bosses, they will set up drones and tell, please stay calm, we're trying to deal with it as much as possible and things like that. Uh, but yeah, people are immensely frustrated. Um, people understand uh, the goals of the government, but nobody wants to go through that with children. And again, my network is of relatively wealthy people. So the lockdown is not as bad for us as it is to the poorer citizens. And, and do people do people think zero COVID is a viable strategy? You know, zero COVID being something that most of the rest of the world has entirely given up on. You know, most of our even our more kind of pro lockdown or pro mitigation authorities in the U.S. admit that that's you know not what we're striving for. Uh, how, but the, the Chinese government is a, a very notable going in a, in a different direction, kind of is still keeping to it. How do the people feel about about that policy? Does it seem reasonable to people? 
it, it, it felt very reasonable up until March, right? <laughs> because that's, 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 what the, that's what the country achieved, right? Mm -hmm. People couldn't leave the country very easily. Uh, it was very hard to fly in and out of the country. But other than that, like everything was open. Shanghai was fully open. Nobody was masking anywhere. Uh, nightclubs were full, restaurants were full, like movie theaters, like life was normal, was teaching, not a problem. So up until this lockdown, um, yes, people were very supportive of the COVID zero strategy. People knew that the Omicron changed that somewhat, but people haven't lived through that experience. Mm. Now that they have, they are openly discussing the pros and cons of such uh, a stringent lockdown. And it is also the problem of the, go the local governments that didn't plan properly and dilly-daddle a little bit in, in how to approach this lockdown. They announced it too late. They announced it in stagger mode. People went panic buying. And instead, of, there were all sorts of tiny mistakes, administrative mistakes, which is, in a way, understandable, given that you were in a city of 26 million people. Isn't a lockdown will never be smooth. Um, but people are discussing openly uh, the trade-offs of zero COVID in China today. Interesting. Two years, two years after the rest of us, you know. But but like you mentioned, you guys haven't really had to deal with it as much because you're going to bars and no one's wearing masks, and you guys are going to nightclubs, and so you haven't experienced the lockdowns like many of us have been experiencing over the last two years of having so many restrictions. And then finally, we're all over it. You know, now it seems like you guys are two years later starting to deal with, oh, no, wow, this is a reality and it's still spreading. And I don't what are we going to do? So it's interesting. It's well, very interesting. I, I've been very unlucky because I've experienced the lockdown in Madrid and I experienced self-isolating and, and social distancing in Brazil. So for me, it's the third wave of oh, lockdowns. I'm oh not gosh. Happy, I, I'm right. so sorry. You do have bad luck, my friend. Yeah, well, you thank do. you so much, yeah. Professor, for joining us. We really do appreciate it, and we'd love to have you again. Yeah, good my luck. Pleasure. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Last week, there was controversy in the Greek parliament after members of the opposition party, the uh, Syriza's, they are a progressive left-wing party in Greece, stormed out after watching Zelensky appear on the screen to parliament aside two neo-Nazi Azov battalion members. Uh, the leader of the opposition party, uh, his name is Alexis Cyprus. He actually tweeted out, uh, this is in Greek, but we are translating as best as possible. It says the speech of members of the neo-Nazi order Azov in the Greek parliament is a challenge. The absolute responsibility lies with the university. I'm sure that was translated probably poorly, but he says he talks. He talked about a historic day, but it's a historical shame. Solidarity with Ukrainian people is a given, but the Nazis cannot have a say in parliament. Um, the government spokesperson also came out after this and uh, said that uh, that including a message from an Azov battalion member was wrong and inappropriate. So this is really interesting what has happened. You know, in Greece, they're very pro, you know, they're sympathetic to Ukraine. This particular political party, this progressive political party is very sympathetic to Ukraine. 
but they are not at all sympathetic to the Azov Battalion and the neo-Nazis that have been absorbed into the Ukrainian military. Here in the United States, we don't talk about it much in the mainstream media. They seem to have whitewashed this history. The Greeks have not. Uh, they're much more aware of it. There's actually a large Greek population living in Mariupol in Ukraine, which is where this battalion is very heavily centered and has been fighting. And there's been a big civil war in the Donbass region of Ukraine for a long time. Um, and so, you know, Robbie, what do you, this is really interesting that right. the Greeks said, whoa, what is this? Uh, well, not OK, Zelensky. And apparently one of these uh, two uh, Azov battalion members who appeared in the video, one of them was uh, was trying to appeal to the Greek people as a Greek and, and said, according to Reuters, said, I address you as a Greek by origin. And then he actually, so he had, he said he was in the Azov battalion, but he, he sort of denied being a Nazi because he, he said that, he actually said that his grandfather had fought against the Nazis or, or something like that. So, uh, you know, trying to, I, I guess, trying to disguise what uh, the ideology of the Azov Battalion actually is. Well, and people are very confused about the ideology. And they say, how can right. Zelensky, who's Jewish, be, you know, really, you know, how can these guys be neo-Nazis when Zelensky himself is Jewish? And, you know, this doesn't make any sense. But people need to understand that being a Nazi, the, the term stems from nationalism. It's being a nationalist. It's not right. being against specifically Jews. In fact, even Nazis, German Nazis, were not just against Jews. They were against all kinds of groups of people. Um, and what, what we're seeing in Ukraine with the Azov Battalion and several others, they're not the only one, they're the largest, they're the ones that people get you know, a lot of visibility, but they're anti-anything other than Ukrainian. So they are ultra-right-wing Ukrainian nationalists. They don't want anyone else in Ukraine except Ukrainians. You know, they persecute Russian Ukrainians, they persecute Romanians, they go after polls. Right. They go after anybody who's not Ukrainian, very specifically. Now, they've been targeting mostly Russian Ukrainians because there's a lot, a very large in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, a lot of those Ukrainians are Russian speaking. They, they don't speak Ukrainian. Uh, and so there's been a big, you know, push from the, the this this ideology, this neo-Nazi nationalistic ideology to eradicate the Russian culture, Russian language from Ukraine. They want Ukraine to be Ukrainian, and that's it. So it, they're not, you know, the, so that's where people get confused. They say, well, no, that they, how can they, you know, because they're not anti-Jew. Well, no, that's not, the, that's not, they're anti-Russian, actually, more than it, but also anti-Romanian, anti-Pole, but they target the Russians specifically more often than anyone else. Uh, you said um, that you said Nazi doesn't just mean nationalist, right? Not, I mean, Nazi is actually nationalist socialist. It includes the, the socialist, right? There's a lot of some people on the left, you know, conveniently leave out the socialist right. aspect of the Nazi regime, which was very collectivist and, and massive government, you know, over, oversight of how the economy will be run, allowing private enterprise to run it, but very much for state, uh, explicitly for state uh, purposes, right? Uh, you know, under well, the and I don't know. I don't know the politics of the Azov Battalion or the neo-Nazi groups, factions right. within Ukraine. I don't know what their economic politics are. But what we do know is that they are very much uh, ethnically nationalistic. You know, they they want to eradicate the mm. Russian language completely from Ukraine. They banned it in certain areas of Ukraine. Um, so they're they very much target and they've terrorized the Russian Ukrainian people for the last 
you know, a really long time. And now they've been in a civil war in Ukraine in the Donbass region for the last eight years, eight, nine years. Um, but, you know, look, here in the United States, we don't talk about if you if you talk about it, people here now. I mean, they they were talking about it actually quite a lot. It was well known. There's several you could go back in time if you do the Google history search and, and do it before the war in Ukraine, the Russian Ukrainian war. And you'll see all kinds of articles popping up in Guardian and New York Times talking about the neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine. But suddenly now there's what problem? What neo-Nazi? Which is amazing because talking about the rise of Nazis is the mainstream media's favorite activity. But you can't uh, ascribe to this group any uh, like Republican or conservative views, right? right. So there's no they, there, there's no way to fit it into our current lens. In fact, it fits the opposite way because they're fighting on the same side as a, a as a, a group of people that. You know, stateside, uh, Democrats and liberals are, are very sympathetic to, understandably sympathetic to the plight of Ukraine, but it doesn't, you know, fit our current political moment the way and, that that, right. that the mainstream does for talking about Nazis. And the fact that this story didn't get out and wasn't uh, mm. mainstream news here in the United States that, you know, Greek parliament stood up and walked out and said, whoa, and the government right. had to issue... Uh, well, you not know, the whole parliament. They didn't, mo mostly the people was, in the parliament were applauding, right? They got a... He, got a standing ovation From so the, yeah, I don't know right do you, now, what do you know about how this might change is, is this going to affect how the Greek government views the war no I think that they're still very pro-Ukraine I think they're very mm -hmm. very sympathetic to Ukraine uh, I think they just are not at all sympathetic to the Nazi battalions that have been absorbed into the official Ukrainian military I think that is that is actually if you go back and look at the history of, of, I mean, the Greeks have been talking about this for a long time. They've actually condemned Ukraine for absorbing them into their military well before the war happened. They've been talking against the Azov Battalion and raising this issue with Ukraine for a while. Um, but now with this, yes, they are still very much pro-Zelensky. They are, they are sympathetic to Ukraine. They just did not like seeing these neo-Nazis on their screen addressing parliament they thought that was way too mm -hmm. far and you know like the the opposition right now they're they they have the the main party in powers on the right the left-wing party is the one that stormed out uh and then the government the right-wing government had to issue the apology saying that was totally inappropriate this has been in the news in greece not making it in the news here the greek people are very upset about this saying what in the world you know we want to be sympathetic but my gosh you know like this is not the way to do it yeah. so very interesting stuff going on. But, you know, it is something that needs to be recognized. We're not recognizing at all here in the United States the problem. The, the, the You know, we were for a while there, like I said, in mainstream news. But now it's, oh, uh, what problem? You know, what neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine? There is one. And you can still be, you know, if you support Ukraine, you can be pro-Zelensky. But you can also understand that there is this, this faction that is, you know, quite powerful in Ukraine. Um, and they, they should be called out. But right, we, we do have a very underdog mentality in this country. You just see the underdog, you just want to believe they're good, wholly good, and that there's nothing bad about them. And the reality is, is there is this faction that's actually quite bad. Mm. But, you know, right now everybody's like, no, go get them. And they're very good fighters. So they're actually the ones that have been doing the majority of the really good fighting. Uh, and that is also why Zelensky was appearing alongside both of them. They are very ruthless. They're the ones that we've seen a lot of the torture of Russian soldiers. That's all being committed by this particular faction. They're very, but they are, you know, very good, efficient fighters. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's the 
very War makes uh, strange. I mean, I'm not. It's it's they're bad, obviously. I mean, we uh, the U.S. was allied. With, you know, anti-communist country. We're allied with the Soviet Union during World War II because Hitler was right. more of our enemy. And it, you know, there's all these weird examples of how how that all shakes down. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, thanks for you know drawing more attention to it. It is it is something that was being talked about before. The war and now because of who who's on what side in terms of like the media conversation, uh, it, it's yeah, not no, talked it's, about. So right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will undergo a month-long comprehensive review and evaluation, according to agency director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. The move comes after the agency has received criticism for its handling of the pandemic and will be conducted by Jim McRae, who served as acting administrator of the Health Resources and Services Administration for two years and has held other senior positions at the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. So it's about time, I would say. But how is another health bureaucrat going to fairly adjudicate these things at all? Probably not very well. Probably not very well. Yeah, shouldn't some... Yeah. There definitely needs to be some sort of review of the CDC and their handling of the pandemic. Same thing with the FDA. I mean, there's several different NIH. I mean, we could go through the list and you're right. I don't know how cozy one organization is with the other. And so, you know, I mean, all these health administration officials, are they going out partying together on the weekends, maskless, of course, you know, right, <laughs> and they right. all know each other. So then when they investigate one another, it's like, oh, yeah, don't worry. about. I mean, it would be nice to know how right. connected are they uh, in that way. Right. Well, right. And I'm and sure they're, ideo- they're connected in the ideological sense that they believe that, right. they believe that it is necessary and proper and right and just for collect for health decisions for indiv- individuals to be made at the level of government planning that only you know a handful of quasi democratically elected but not actually really democratically elected federal bureaucrats are the ones who get to decide when and whether tests therapeutics, vaccines, et cetera, are approved, and when and whether there is compulsory masking, compulsory vaccination, et cetera. So the view that actually this should devolve to as local an authority as possible, to the individual level as if possible, to non-governmental forces if possible, like, I don't, I don't know who this person is. Maybe, maybe they have this wild libertarian streak or something, but I tend to doubt it because if they did, they probably would never have been in that position. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this month-long review even is going to be uh, going over, you know, and, and, you know, which policies in particular are they going to be scrutinizing? Are they just going to be doing, kind of looking at everything, and then in the end they're going to say, oh, A-plus, CDC, you did a fantastic <laughs> job. Right. You know, that, is that is that what it is? Is it being called on just for, because people are criticizing the CDC, or are they calling on it because they're feeling like, oh, you know, uh, this right. is just something we do. It's just, it's just... Uh, you know, par for the course whenever there's something like a pandemic or some other right. big event. And, and we, we, you know, we give a lot, we criticize uh, the NIH a lot, very, you know, deserves it. We have lots of questions about how funds, funding was being made, grant approval, you know, gain of function, all that stuff, totally valid. And we criticize the CDC a lot, you know, on a day-to-day basis for whatever the guidance is and, you know, how nonsensical it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really, you know, this agency for, for, 
like all the good it did at the beginning, it, it like it did no good. It did negative. It did harm. Like tests were not approved. Tests to help people figure out whether they had COVID were slow rolled by the CDC because of this totally misguided idea that no, well, we're, we're going to have one government test and we don't want tests if they're imperfect. You know, that could make people more confused than than if they weren't tested at all, which was obviously ridiculous because even an imperfect test would have helped people more than no test at all. In the early days where, you know, getting COVID was a, a more serious thing than it is now, especially for an older person, and they totally screwed it up. It'd be better if the agency hadn't existed at that phase of the pandemic. And that is a pretty damning thing to say about a health agency. Wow. We expect it from you, though, as a libertarian, Robbie, <laughs> to say it shouldn't exist. <laughs> Uh, you know, what, what's interesting about this review is that Dr. Walensky herself is putting in a lot of the tips and advice for making changes to the CDC. So, you know, what they're trying to do is they're wanting, they're going to look back, they're going to review. Um, obviously, there was a lot of mixed messaging. There was a lot of mistakes that were made. So it'll be interesting to see what they end up recommending going forward as, um, you know, here are some tweaks and fixes that you guys could come up with. One thing that I'm I'm interested in seeing is if they end up saying, oh, we need to streamline this process and kind of consolidate and mm -hmm. centralize so that everything is on the same message. And that, you know, on one hand, yeah, it's good. There should be one united message coming out of the health departments, you know, the, the uh, in the United States, in our government, rather than getting a bunch of different viewpoints from CDC, NIH, WHO, you know, all these different organizations. Um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, if they're evaluating themselves, as we've mentioned, and they're going to come up with with measures or fixes or changes, are they going to be really any good? Are we going to like the streamlining and the centralizing? I know that's like a dirty word to you. They're centralizing this, Robbie. It is a dirty word. It's a dirty <laughs> word. I know. I want to see some dissension. Is there? I mean, I want to know about it if there is. And there was some dissension, right? Over the uh, not in the maybe that wasn't the the well, yeah, the the approval of uh, of 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 boosters, right? That was a there was a d disagreement of of opinions yeah. between various you know all people involved in this process. Which is fine because you know reasonable people can disagree about you know what and whether it's necessary for a person of a certain age to 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 get a booster. Certainly, there's lots of disagreement about whether it should be forced on people. I, I don't think there should be disagreement about that. It should just not be forced on people. But uh, but there there this the science has changed so much, and we, there's no sense of well, are they like aware of it? Are they just totally PR conscious? Um, you know what, and then the the data. I I want to know more about you know what data is motivating their decisions at at each point because it often say well it's based on this study and then we look at that study and go actually this wasn't a very good study why are you using this to inform your entire government approach and then they just then they deny that. Well, anyway, it's, yeah. It's well, my guess is they're not going to be talking about being more transparent to the no. American people in this review. I'm, I, I don't know exactly how the bureaucracy works, so I'm not sure if they can consolidate, let's say, CDC into the NIH. I wonder if they're going to, you know, that, that's why we have the NIH, for example, is it was because they wanted to consolidate all, what is it, like 17 different health agencies, mm -hmm. and they wanted to kind of you know, rather than having all of these different agencies kind of operating somewhat independently, they had to kind of put them together under one umbrella in order to have a cohesive uh, plan and messaging and keeping everybody on the same page. And I'm curious, I, again, I don't know, This is so I'm just throwing this out there. 
I'm wondering if they're going to say, well, the CDC should now also be under the NIH in a way. And so it would just be Fauci and not Walensky in the future, for example. See, that's why uh, centralization is scary. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's scary anyway. It's, it's a problem if it's all one thing together. It's a problem if it's a, a, bunch, of, a bunch of separate things. But they should, they should explore during this analysis whether maybe not having a CDC would be the right would be the right. What about approach. NIH? What about NIH? Yeah, maybe not Fauci? having the NIH. Maybe not doing. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. We've got to be very careful. But maybe not. You know, funding research for making uh, uh, viruses more deadly in lab conditions that we're not paying close enough attention right. to. It's not the best use of taxpayer dollars, and no, in fact, I mean, look, something that imperils all of humanity. True. I agree that there were there has been a lot of serious issues. The pandemic was handled, as you know, I, I, I totally disagreed with the handling of the pandemic. Uh, also disagree with, you know, gain of function research and whatnot. But these agencies do also do a lot of good. So I think there is a lot of there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of public health and science and research. Right. A lot of great stuff that comes out of it. It's just that um, with the pandemic, it was a, a very different experience. That's what, you know, when, when it was right. in real time, fast paced, a lot of different information coming out of everybody, a lot of fear. Everybody was operating on fear. That was the big one rather than science. Um, so I don't know, but we'll, but we'll see what they end up doing in this month long review, what the recommendations are. And then are they even binding, right? So they'll give the recommendations mm -hmm. and say, we think you guys should do X, Y, Z thing to fix this for the next pandemic. Cause that's what right. they're talking about. Um, and we'll see if they even do it. Yeah, I'm never satisfied that there have been enough hearings of these people. Like Congress, call these people to account. You know, how many times have we, you know, ha had the big tech CEOs, you know, brought before Congress in the in what tend to be, to my mind at least, and, and I'm plenty critical of, you know, many of these CEOs, but these end up being like embarrassing show trials. For, for Congress has no idea what to do about these problems and is much less informed about them than than the people talking. And they have what like, is the very, internet? <laughs> right, right. How about we do one fewer of those and and have, you know, Walensky and Fauci and all the rest answering. I mean, this has happened, but we should we should do it more. This is something that this is well, a government agency. These are public health people. This is something Congress can and should take a firmer role in. And I, I don't know. They just they don't care. As well. They just talk about it. And they don't do anything. You're probably going to get your wish, I think, when Republicans take over Congress. I would imagine that they do. Oh, you better believe they're going to be. Am I going to get my wish, or am I going to get like some investigation of the Disney Corporation, like, which is not no, an endorsement of everything Fauci. Disney does? They're, I get it, but they're going to totally go after Fauci. You can see Fauci being yeah. carted in there right now when it's under Republican control, and yeah. you know them going after well, him. I don't know if Walensky will get it as much, but certainly I think Fauci will, right. and they'll be talking to him all the time about gain of right. function and right. all kinds of in China. I mean, you know. Don't you think Republicans are not going to miss an opportunity to be talking I, well, about I China? I hope so, but, and I hope it's, it's, but it's not just about Fauci, the person. It's about the institution and how this. So I, I hope I just hope they don't lose focus on you know reforming the process and the institutions rather than just because it's not you know despite all my criticism of Fauci, it's not just about it's not just about individuals. It's about structures in our government that are that are beyond our control and are not transparent or responsive to us that we need to fix. So. Hopefully, if Republicans look at that, I think that would be doing a lot of good for the country, but we'll see.
we Most shall see. Most of them aren't libertarians, so. Right. No, sadly. <laughs> Just me. Right. Well, tomorrow Thanks. on Rising, John Yadarola and Rachel Bovard will be in for our Rising panel, and crypto expert David Waxman will be here to break down why Bitcoin and cryptocurrency prices are sinking. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any of our amazing content. And for those of you who like to listen to the show while on the go, check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts. There yeah. we are. So, All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching. And we will see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye. -bye.